We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back. I know it has been a while. Some of you who follow um, closely uh, this podcast channel, you might be saying the same thing to me. Welcome back. Um, it, it has been a little bit too long. Part of that has been we finished Romans up and trying to figure out where the Lord wanted to take us on the next one. And I had every intent coming down here last week and doing a podcast and I got everything set up and it just didn't feel like God was saying it was, it was time. Uh, I had kind of my agenda somewhat that I wanted to do, but it just didn't feel like God was saying that it was time. So I, I instead did some study and just spent some time down here alone with him. And, um, I feel like God is saying he's given the green light on this. And so what I'm excited about what we're going to do, this is more so up my alley, the apologetics of Scripture. I was talking to a friend of mine um, that I've grown in relationship with recently, and I'm just very encouraged in that. And, and he suggested, what about if you took some of the, the popular verses today that are used, but used incorrectly, and you just went through Scripture and you just diagnosed what those verses actually mean, or those passages, or maybe even a topic. And so uh, that's kind of been in the works for a couple weeks, and I've just been thinking through what that's going to look like. So this is kind of kickstarting off a new series on apologetics of going through the text. There's going to be some verses that are a little bit more complex than others. There's going to be some verses that I've already covered on some of my other podcasts. There's going to be some verses that you're going to be like, yeah, I, that's, I already get that. Um, and then there's going to be some that are going to be very challenging that might step on your toes. And the point of this is to um, rearrange what man has rearranged from what God ordered in the beginning of what his word is actually supposed to do and get back to what the text is supposed to say um, before it was distorted by man or whatever it might be for the reasons for it. So the first one I'm going to do, um, as of right now at least, about two to three passages on each podcast channel. So my goal is, or each podcast um, segment that I do, my goal is to try to keep this at about 20 to 30 minutes. So they're going to be a little bit shorter, so it's going to be a little bit more of a heavy hitting but in shorter doses. The first two that I'm going to work on today and kind of try to navigate through, Lord willing, um, in a way that's going to cause you to understand it, um, the way that I believe the Spirit wants us to understand it, is 1 Timothy 5.8, which is one that has come into play a couple times, even just in the last week or so. Um, and maybe that's why God wanted me to wait, because He wanted me to do this one, uh, but I, I wouldn't have had the exposure to it before. So, 1 Timothy 5, 8 we're going to do, and Romans 8, 28. Those are two very popular verses to use, but I believe that they're used incorrectly oftentimes today. So we're going to get into that and look at what it actually states. So 1 Timothy 5, 8, this is what it says. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially 
for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right, so let's, let me give you how this verse is oftentimes taken, and then I'm going to give you how this verse should be taken. Oftentimes this verse is referenced as, if you don't take care of your extended family, your relatives, that's bad, right? You should take care of your extended, your extended family, your uh, uncles and cousins and you know, nephews and nieces, and you should take care of all that extended family, but especially you should take care of your immediate family, your, um, your wife and your children and, and your father or your mother, or your brother and your sister, your immediate family, you should make sure you take care of them. And I'm going to say that there's some truth to that principle, but it's not the truth that's derived from this text. And here's why I say that. Let me break this down just real quick. One, the context of 1 Timothy 5.8 is referencing taking care of earthly family and taking care of heavenly family. You look through it, the whole context, you look at verse 4, what he talks about, when he says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let um, them first learn to show godliness to their own household, and that's an important word to dissect that I'll get to in just a little bit, to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So the context is, is if you have a, a widow, all right, so that's the primary context through all this, and then stemmed from that of the provision of the earthly and the heavenly. If you have a widow who has got children, those children need to make a return to this widow in order to take care of them. That is something that is being charged here. You don't have an excuse. That's something you need to do. But if you go down to verse 9 and look at what's being talked about, there's this apparent program within the church, and I would take it back to Acts chapter 6 and 7, where it talks about the, the, um, uh, the daily distribution for the widows. There's this enrollment program in the church. And I don't want to make it sound business-oriented, but that's what the word enrollment seems to make me think of. There's this enrollment program in which a widow who is part of the congregation of the church, a widow who is truly left all alone, who has no children to make a return to her, who has no earthly family to take care of her, it says that she needs to be enrolled in the care of the church, that the church is then to take care of her as its own. And it gives some qualifications to that, if you keep reading in that context. But I wanted to kind of break it down real quick, just the context, and we're going to move from there. In 1 Timothy 5, the whole context is, is stemming from widows. And from there, you get two draw points from that. Earthly family, heavenly family. Okay, There is a charge to take care of your earthly family, but there is a charge also like within the, the scope of this passage, to take care of the heavenly family. And that makes so much more sense when you read chapter uh, 5, verse 8, when you understand it. It is about an earthly family and a heavenly family. And he says this in verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, let me break this word down, it's the Greek word idios, and it means those who belong to themselves, or those who belong to um, himself. Let me actually pull up the actual definition and read it for you. The King James uses the phrase his own, okay, so it's something pertinent to specifically you. This word idios, here's what the theos means, pertaining to oneself, one's own, or belonging to oneself. It's something that is yours. It's something that belongs specifically to you. Okay? 
And the reason I bring this up is because in verse 4, I told you to take note of that word household. And I want you to look at the context of verse 4. It's specific to the earthly context of children unto their parents. Same word, idios. And we see it here, but the ESV translates it here in verse 8 as relatives. However, I think that it's the exact same. It's that which belongs to you by blood. Alright, it's not an extended family that has no blood orientation to you. It is that which is belonging to your own self. It is your blood, your flesh and blood in an earthly, physical, worldly sense. So he says, you have a charge to take care of your earthly relatives. Those who belong to you by blood. There is a charge that is there. Your your wife, your children, your father, your mother, your brother, your sisters, I believe even scientifically speaking, it even goes up to the second cousin. I believe that's where, if I remember correctly from my own studies on this, it goes up to the second cousin is where that, that connection of blood comes in play. But listen to what he goes on to say. Remember how this is normally taken. Extended family and immediate family. And I'm going to pose to you that this is referencing your earthly family and your heavenly family. Those in whom you belong to by an earthly blood. And more importantly, those who you belong to through the blood of Christ. Here's what he says. If anyone does not provide for his own, his relatives, those who are connected to you by an earthly blood. And especially for members of his household. Now he doesn't use idios here. Paul, as he's writing this to Timothy, is a charge to establish in the church, because remember, Timothy is an elder in Ephesus, and he says, I want you to establish order in the church. So these are things that are not just for Paul telling Timothy for the church in Ephesus. This is something that's supposed to be done in every church, in everywhere that calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's verse 2. This word for household is actually a word that is only used three times. In all of scripture. And it's a Greek word. Oikios. And I'm going to show you. What this word means. Let me first actually read you the definition. And Thayer is belonging to a house or family. An intimate family. Belonging to one's household. Belonging to the household of God. And I think that's important. Because here's the deal. In Galatians chapter 6, and I believe it's in verse 9. Let me read it to you real quick. I've got it memorized, but I want to make sure that when I'm put on the spot, I don't get it incorrectly. So it's 9 through 10, the concept that he's referencing here. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's a whole other point that I could talk about, uh, but it's deviating from our point. Verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The next one is in Ephesians chapter 2. Did you notice the same framework that's used there? Let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. It's the exact same thing that he says in 1 Timothy 5. Let us do good to our own, but especially to the household of faith. Here's what he also says in Ephesians chapter 2. Right here in verse 18 going on. For through him we both have access, meaning Jews and Gentiles, in one spirit to the Father. 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the church. In both instances, it is a specific, a specific and direct reference to the church of Jesus Christ that this word oikios is used. So you have idios and you have oikios. And these two Greek words signify, and I'm just going to break it down very simplistically is what I believe the context of this passage is suggesting according to the Greek words and the context of the passage. You have those who are your earthly blood and those who are the heavenly blood. And you are to do good to your earthly blood, but especially those who are of the household of faith. And why does this make such a big deal? Why is it that I can't just let this slide? It's because the glory of the church is being diminished. And because if I am to signify that this is supposed to reference your extended relatives and your earthly relatives, then I've just made Jesus and Paul both infidels. Who have denied the faith. And you're like, well, that's pretty strong language. Well, I want you to listen to what he says in Luke chapter 14, 26 to 27. Because if I am to take that my first ministry, my most profound and prioritized ministry, must be my earthly family, because it says it in 1 Timothy 5 8. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. He says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If my earthly family is to be the numero uno, if that's what Paul's referencing in 1 Timothy 5.8, I'm going to get to what Paul actually states in 1 Corinthians 7.29 that contradicts the thought that he's referencing earthly family in 1 Timothy 5.8. But if I am to state that my earthly family is to be of greater priority than even the church, and that neglecting my earthly family makes me an infidel or worse than an unbeliever, and denying the faith, then Jesus is guilty. Because he literally just said, if you want to follow him, then you must love them less. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 29. He says, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, those who have wives live as though they had none. Contradiction? If you believe that 1 Timothy 5.8 is referencing that your greatest priority is your immediate family and not your heavenly family, then yeah, it's a contradiction. But that's the problem. The word doesn't have contradictions in it. It just simply has gray areas that people haven't searched out enough in truth to find the black and white. If I'm to take 1 Timothy 5.8, as many people do today, that is referencing my extended family and then my immediate family, both of blood, then I make Jesus and Paul, both of them, infidels who denied the faith. Jesus even talks about it in Luke 18, 29-30, in which he says this. Let me turn to it real quick. He says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, did you know that it is impossible to separate Jesus from his body? The church is his body. And if you try to separate Jesus from his body, then you've decapitated the faith. Which is interesting as to why he says you've denied the faith. And I'll explain that in a second as to what the whole faith is built upon. 
But he says very interestingly enough here, Jesus says, there is no one who has left houses or lands or wife or children or father or mother, parents, whatever, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He says the requirement to follow him is that you might have to love them less, which is what the Greek word meseo means for hate, as in Luke 14. He's not saying, I want you to hate your family. He just simply says that in comparison to how you love me and my church, it's going to look like hatred. Because there's going to be times where you're going to have to sacrifice your family in order to serve the kingdom of God. There's going to be some times where you're going to have to put your family in harm's way to serve the kingdom of God. And you might think God would never ask me to do that. He's been asking his saints to do that for the last 2,000 years. I can tell you story after story after story of men and women who put their family at risk for the glory of God. I can tell you story after story of men and women who actually allowed their families to be put in these very intense moments of danger, even unto death, for the sake of the glory of God. So we can't look at 1 Timothy 5.8 as saying that it's all about the earthly family. That family, earthly family, is my first ministry. You can't say that. Because you would be disengaging from the actual text. 1 John 3.23, I'm going to turn to it real quick. And I'm going to try to summarize this with what the, the foundation of the faith is all about. You have 1 John 3.23 says, And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That one another is the church of Jesus Christ. Do good to all, but especially the household of faith. He says, this is what everything is built on. To believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, that He is the Christ, the Son, the living God, and to love one another. John 13, 34-35. John heard it firsthand. That's why he's repeating it here in 1 John. Where he says, a new commandment, this is Jesus speaking, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this the world will know that you belong to me. Catch that? If you have love for one another. To belong to oneself through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been yoked together with Christ through his blood and to one another. Therefore, we as the body of Jesus Christ serve the head by loving each other. And that's what he says in 1 John Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, meaning the brothers, abides in death. He goes on, verse 16. By this we know we love, we, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for Jesus. No, he doesn't say that. He says for the brothers. See, this is the epitome of what the faith is all about. So if you are going to say, and this is why it ties in to 1 Timothy 5.8. If you're going to say that it's referencing the earthly family, then that makes Jesus and Paul themselves even infidels. But if you correctly interpret it to say that it's your earthly family and your heavenly family, especially the heavenly family, because if you disengage from loving the heavenly family as your first priority in this life because Jesus commissioned and commanded us to do it, then you have denied what the faith is founded upon and you are worse than an unbeliever because you are part of the body of Christ and should be fulfilling the commission that Jesus gave to us in his son or that God gave to us in his son. There's no way around it. So may we...
present this verse correctly so that the glory of the church, as it talks about, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians 8.23, or maybe it's 1 Corinthians 8.13. I don't remember which one it is. I always get confused. That the churches are the glory of Christ. May the church get the glory that she deserves because of the person of Jesus Christ whom we are in. So don't serve the seconds when the firsts are what are commanded to serve. So hopefully that summarizes that. And I'm also going to tell you, <coughs> excuse me, this next one that I'm going to talk about will be a little bit more simplistic. We'll talk about it. I've got quite a few verses that I'm going to go through and show you some things. Uh, but it is going to be a little bit more straightforward. Uh, but if you have recommendations or topics or verses or things in which you just never really understood, please send me a comment. Shoot me an email or talk about it on Podbean, wherever you're listening from. Shoot me something. Um, if you know me specifically, if you know me personally, then shoot me a text and, and give me some ideas. I would love to go through these. I've got about 12 to 15 um, verses right now that I'd like to go through. All right, so Romans 8.28. So this is um, a passage that says, let me get to it and read. I'm flipping in my Bible, so I know if you hear my pages turning. That's a, a beautiful sound if you're a teacher. Um, if you can hear other people's pages turning. But for you, you might not like that as much because it might be loud in the microphone. Um, Romans 8.28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So why do I bring this one up? Because I think oftentimes people today like to look at this verse as an unconditional promise. That because I am saved and I'm a child of God, everything will work out for my good, for his glory, and that's just the end of story. It's just going to work out for good. Regardless of anything I do or don't do, it will just work out for my good because God loves me and that's just who he is. But I'm going to pose to you that I believe that this passage is conditional. That this is a passage that is conditioned upon two elements. In order for something to work out for your good and for his glory, it requires two things in this passage. One, that you first love God above all things. As John 14 commands of us, as he talks about in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus where they abandoned their first love, right? You love God as he ought to be loved. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know, Matthew 6.33 and it's not apples to apples, but it is in the same fruit basket there. Seek first his kingdom. Love him first above all things. That goes into even what we talked about in 1 Timothy 5.8. If you love your family equal to or greater than Jesus then I'm sorry, that's an idol. You love him as he is deserving to be loved and as he commands to be loved with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is, is you walk according to the purpose to which you've been called. If you are not honoring your wife, husbands, as you ought to, 1 Timothy or 1 Peter 3, 7 says that your prayers are hindered. If you're not exercising self-control in all things, 1 Peter chapter 4 says that your prayers will be hindered as well. If you're not turning from sin and you're living a sinful life, then God's not answering your prayers as 2 Chronicles 7.14 talks about. You see, our actions will, will determine oftentimes, maybe not every time, but oftentimes our actions will determine God's reaction towards us. 
This is why James 4 talks about it, to a message to the body, to believers. He says, why is it you aren't getting what you receive? It's because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And yes, we could say, but he gives more grace. What he's talking about there is not that he's overlooking what you're doing and he's just going to give you more grace that covers over top of it. No, he's saying, I'm going to give you the empowerment in order to overcome it, to change. That's why he goes on to say then, draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in you. So your actions towards God will oftentimes determine his reaction towards you. So if you want all things to work out for good, then you need to be making sure that you are in alignment with what God expects of you. So just like he says in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 20-22. When he says, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but in a great house, there's all kinds of vessels that are there, wood and hay and, and gold and silver. And he says, so if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he becomes a vessel of use to the master. He says, you have to cleanse yourself of the things in which are dishonorable in your life. And if you do that, then you become a vessel of good for the master. But if you don't, then not all things will work out for good for you. If I haven't already convinced you off of some of those other passages that I've just shared, let me get into some other ones. Romans 121, 1-3. And I want to share a concept here. And this concept is one in which you have to take Scripture in its fullness to, in order to ascertain the text in its fullness. To get the truth from it, you've got to squeeze the entirety of the text in order to get the, the fullness of the juice from the nectar of truth, if you will. Psalm 121, 1 through 3. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And I want to focus in on this part where he says, He will not let your foot be moved. Well, what is he talking about? Let me read Psalm 15, 1 through 5. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be moved. You see, Psalm 121 talks about the promise. Psalm 15 talks about the condition. I want to share something also in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. It is a beautiful promise that is given to the believers here. But it's one that requires a condition. And see, not every time when the promise is stated does it always give the condition to that promise being fulfilled. You see, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, we find the promise of what God will do. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-13, we find the condition for God to be able to do it in our lives. Now, may our God and Father Himself, sound familiar? And our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Isn't that fascinating? Here it is again, love for one another. And for all, as we do for you, so that... 
He says, I want you to abound for love and for one another. I want you to fulfill the faith, the commission that we have through Christ. I want you to do your part so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Same exact thing that he just talked about in chapter 5. We just find the condition here. If you want to be holy and blameless before him, you have a responsibility to do for him. Philippians 1, 9-10 says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. There is that phrase again. Love. Especially the household of faith. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. For when? For the day of Christ. Same exact thing. You have a responsibility To walk out this life in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. So that your heart will be blameless before Him. So that your body, soul, and spirit would be blameless before Him. Kept without spot or blemish. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 14. Here's what he says. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, the premise is all throughout. That if you want something to work out for your good, you've got to be doing what God is calling you to do. If you are living in deliberate sin, if you are walking in a manner that is not pleasing to the Lord, then do not expect things to work out for your good until you repent. Psalm 31 verse 19 says this, Oh, how abundant is your goodness! which you have stored up for those who fear you. Let me read that one again before I keep going to the rest of it. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked, meaning working all things together for good, for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. You know how I can tell when somebody truly fears the Lord? They obey Him. Because Ecclesiastes 12, I believe it's you know going in 12 through 14, I think is where it's at. Um, don't quote me on that, but it's somewhere there. Right at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon writes this. Where he says, The end of everything is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. You see, if you don't fear God, you won't obey Him. And if you don't obey Him, then don't expect for everything to work out for your good. And so this passage that's being quoted so many times today to bring people comfort and in time of trial, I think it can be used for that, but we need to qualify it. To state that if you want it to truly work out with the goodness of the Lord and you want Him to work on your behalf, then you need to make sure that you are living your life in accordance with His Word. And in this new covenant, this is His commandment, that we believe on His Son and that we love the people of God, the Beloved, the Adelphos. If you do those two things and you're doing it in accordance with the Word of God, living missionally with eternity in view, 
Not keeping your family as the first priority. Not making sure that you are your first priority. That your job is your first priority. Because Jesus has a message about that in Luke 9, 51 through 58. As well as a message right preceding Luke 14 and 26. Go read them. Where he talks about these guys who made excuses to why they couldn't follow Jesus. And you know what those excuses were? Their life, their job, and their family. I'm sorry, Jesus, I can't follow you the way you're asking me to because you know what? I got a wife and kids and you know what? I just, I can't do it. Sorry. He says, then you're not worthy to taste my banquet. You want things to work out for your good? Then you walk according to the purpose that God has commissioned us in His Word. And you obey Him. Because Jesus says in John 14 that if you love me, you'll obey me. If you're not doing those two things, then this passage will not be a comfort for you. You might think it is, but it will not turn out for your good. Just as I talked about in James 4, if you're not obedient to the Lord, if you're not living the way that you're supposed to be, if you're living for selfish gain, using the promises of God for your own glory, you're committing adultery against the King of Kings. And God yearns jealously over that spirit that he has made to dwell in you. So you need to repent, you double-minded. And if you do that, if you draw near to him and you repent and you cleanse your hands, you sinners, if you do that, then this passage is a wonderful encouragement to know that no matter what you are going through, that if your heart is in a line with God and you have zero... um, How does Paul put it? Where I take pains to have a clear conscience. If you have a clear conscience before him, not aware of anything that stands before you and him, then you can know that God is working his goodness for your life. If you are walking in the purpose that he's called you to walk in, then you can know that everything in your life will work out for his good and your good, for his glory and your glory. If you have questions, thoughts, um, I'd love to hear from you guys. Sometimes it gets kind of lonely whenever you never hear anything from anybody. You just talk to yourself in a microphone and hope that people are listening. But if you have questions, thoughts, comments, or if there's suggestions that you have, then I would encourage you guys to make those known to me some way, somehow, and I would love to go over those with you. So those are our two for today. And uh, we will get two more coming up soon. And um, yeah, it was a, a joy to be with you guys again today. And you all be blessed in your obedience and your faithfulness to the Lord.